Hey friends, welcome to The Ruins, a podcast about the journey of faith. My name is Joseph, and in today's episode, I am joined by none other than the Brandy Miller and talking with her about white supremacy and spiritual formation. We'll also talk patriarchy, her podcast, Reclaiming My Theology, and how we can create and form a community experience around faith deconstruction and reconstruction that isn't led by white men. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Well, welcome back, friends. It is great to be with you all again. I hope you're doing well and taking care of yourself and having tons of grace and compassion for yourself because, as we all know, life is hard and you are doing a great job and we love you so much. So just want to encourage you to hang in there. Don't give up. Keep going. Today, we are in for quite the conversation. Sometimes you have these people that you listen to for hours on end and listen to their podcasts and learn from and follow on social media and sort of admire from afar and dream of one day being able to have a conversation with that person and hopefully moving from simply a podcast friend to potentially in real life friend. Today is one of those moments for me. I am so honored. I have been wanting to have this conversation with Brandy for literally years and am thrilled to be talking with one of the most important voices, not only in my life, but so many of your lives and in the faith world as a whole. So Brandy, I'm really excited and grateful that you said yes to the invite to come and speak with us. So thank you for being with us today. Yeah, it's my honor. I'm really glad to be here. Amazing. Well, before we dive into our topic today, even though I'm sure many of our listeners already know you, uh, for those who don't, I would love for you to just share a little bit about who you are. And as you ask your guests, give us a sense of what it means to be Brandy in this season of your life. Yeah. So like you said, my name is Brandy Miller. I am a friend and a daughter and a granddaughter. I am a weightlifter and a video game nerd, but not like really good at it. Like can't play like a Dark Souls game if my life depended on it, but really love some Final Fantasy in my life. I love to cook yeah. and be like a full human who is embodied in the world. And my spirituality and my relationship with Jesus shapes all of that. Um, the freedom I feel to be fully myself comes firstly from the foundation that my faith and my loved ones have given to me. And so with all of that, what that means about what I do currently, I host a podcast called Reclaiming My Theology, which was kind of a happy accident to get to express some of the work I've been doing over the last, really the last decade as I've been reflecting on it with close friends. And I am the chief storyteller at Quest Church in Seattle, uh, which means a lot of things and it doesn't mean a lot of things. And so I spend a lot of my time <laughs> asking, how do we form better, more inclusive language and culture in our church communities such that more people could belong? And so I spend a lot of my time thinking about belonging and beloved community right now and asking how, even in the midst of deconstruction and reconstruction, we don't just give up the church as a concept, but ask how can we renew, restore, be a part of new things happening such that we're connected to each other really deeply. So I think that's what it means to be me right now. Man, I love that. I love that vision. I love the holistic uh, way that you described yourself. Uh, are you PC or console gaming? Console. I just got a PlayStation 5. I scalped one off of the internet on the, you know, in the Puget Sound. And, uh... <laughs> nice. Love that. I am not a gamer, but I know many of our listeners are. Um, and so that's amazing. Well, today we are talking about white supremacy and spiritual formation. And obviously there are so many things we could talk about. You talk about this on your podcast. You did an entire season on white supremacy. So maybe let's just start here. Tell us a little bit about your journey of faith. Like, what did it look like for you to kind of exist in these church spaces and then begin this journey of like learning and unlearning and decolonizing and deconstruction, whatever language you want to mm -hmm. give to your experience in and around reimagining church and theology and ministry? What was that journey like for you? Yeah, so I didn't grow up in the church and got involved in the church when I was like probably 13 or 14 because my older sister started dating a Baptist pastor's son, so she immediately thought I was going to hell. And so I started going to youth mm. group, and because I had come from kind of a traumatic traumatic family background, the church was the most stable thing I had ever experienced. And there was something about theology specifically that was so grounding and good for me, even if it was kind of what we can now identify as the indoctrinating forces of white evangelicalism. 
those things actually served me a lot in my youth because it gave me stability and structure that no other part of my life did. And so I kind of gave everything to the church, to my transformative experiences with Jesus. I was the kind of like seventh and eighth grader that was reading Josh McDowell books and like we'd go to Creation Fest and I would go find like his tent and I'd be the only person like under 50 in the back, like trying to figure out how to like prove to people that Jesus was real, like liar, Lord, you know, lunatic, like the whole, all of the paradigms (laughs) I have, like they're like really deep in me. And so I did that for probably seven or eight years until I graduated high school and found myself at the end of high school kind of indoctrinated into a highly conservative, like Tea Party conservative, white evangelical theology that compelled me, but mostly compelled me to help other people not go to hell or to make decisions that I considered to be like immoral or bad. And so what I found was that my faith made me very holy feeling or righteous feeling and made me afraid of everybody else and of the world around me. And I thought I was going to go to a Christian college because that was what all of my youth pastors told me to do. Because like, especially like in the mid 2000s, like the worst thing that you could do for a Christian student was send them to a secular college. It was like where faith goes to die. Yes, absolutely. And so, That's like the hellscape yeah. of secularism. Yeah. And if you want to like the kind of colleges like that were in the, it was like Biola, Master's College, like it's... I grew up listening to like Kent Hovind stuff on creationism and like dinosaur proving, you know, like yeah, it was dispensationalism. like dispensationalism. Oh yeah. I could do all yeah. of the points of tulip pretty effectively. I could probably put it to a song. So I just feel like there's all kinds of ways that that's what I, that's what I entered the end of my adolescence, like started college at the secular university in Oregon being like, this is where I, this is where I go. Like I save people, I figure out myself, I learn and I engage And I ended up joining, there were two Christian groups on campus, one that was more like conservative and the other one that was like an inner varsity chapter that had a bunch of students of color in it. And they were just really good friends to me. And as I was like lonely and trying to navigate the awkwardness of being a freshman in college, which is kind of the worst, the only thing the worst than being a freshman in college is being a sophomore in college, I think, because all the character (laughs) formation just like blows up in your face when you realize how Mm, like not great you are. And I just had a, a community of people who believed deeply in Jesus They believed deeply in being able to hear the voice of God in real time, which I thought you could only do through the Bible. They believed that at the center of what God is doing is this like just and reconciling work to bring people together. And I was like, that is some bullshit. Like y'all are so liberal. You've lost the gospel. You, you don't know what you're doing. Like I remember hiding in like a fraternity voting for Sarah Palin and John McCain in my first election. I could vote against Barack Obama. And, you know, it was like the full thing. But what I found as I started to pay attention to their lives was that I had a lot of theological knowledge, but they had lives that reflected to other people that their theological knowledge actually meant something in the world. And they were reading and engaging with people that I had never heard of before. And I had and I started to realize that my theology had been siloed into the specific, highly vetted category of like 50 plus year old conservative white men, and that there was so much more to know and understand and it wasn't like in that moment I was like, oh, yeah, now I'm totally down for this. But I was just open enough to to say and to be able to acknowledge that there were ways to read the Bible that I didn't know. And should I engage with that in a deep way that might change something for me? And it did. And so I switched, switched my major from wanting to do, um, you know, a music production of CCM, like Christian contemporary music, and shifted to ethnic studies and spent the rest of my college career and really the rest of my life up up until this point asking how white supremacy and racism infects how we view theology, the gospel, each other, and the world that we live in and what Christians' roles mm. are in that. And so I think that's it's a kind of a long story, but that's the arc for me of, of how that sort of happened. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the two things that really stuck out to me in your story was one, I know on your podcast and in a lot of the work you do, there's a lot of Uh, conversation around, I don't know if critiquing is the right word, but just holding white evangelicalism to account for the ways that's harmed people. But also there's a deep love that you had for the way that in that season of your life served you. And I think that's one of the misconceptions that a lot of people have around critiquing or holding people accountable or calling people out in different ways that there's not actually a hatred of those people or those systems just as they are, but rather a deep desire to kind of like come into a new way of doing things and holding people accountable. And I'm wondering if in that journey for you, was there sort of like a, a crystallization 
moment of like this old way or this past or previous way of doing faith and theology and church and ministry just doesn't work for me anymore? Or do you think that it's more so based on somebody's personality or somebody's experience? Like how can people go through the process of learning and unlearning and kind of like opening the door to reading or learning or growing in ways that aren't centered on 50 plus year old cishet white conservative evangelicals? Well, can I talk a little bit of Bible? Yes, absolutely, please. Because I think in the Jesus way, I see two different ways or two specific ways that people can categorically come to know the new way that Jesus is giving, where he's saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, or like, hey, y'all used to do it this way, but like, actually, like, let me reinterpret this. Let me be the person to engage this differently. Let me show you what I meant by that, you know, in the beginning or, or whatever you want to say about all of that. And there's people who Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And they follow for a long time and people make decisions over time more deeply into the way or more deeply out of the way of Jesus. And so part of moving into it is trusting that as we make decisions and as we step into something new, that Jesus is going to be faithful to be with us in it. Like, I think that there's a there's a fear for many of us that when we start to deconstruct, that everything is lost. And so when Jesus says, come follow me, there is loss for people. They like leave things behind. They reshape their ideas. They have to admit that they were wrong about things. But the gain that they get is this community that Jesus is forming. And so I think there's some people who it's a longer journey, a longer time, like multiple years of figuring out, like, is this Jesus guy the thing I'm trying to be about? And is this community what I want to engage with? Am I willing to let my faith be reshaped by this rabbi Jesus? And then there's other groups of people who Jesus is like, follow me. And they're like, bet, I'm in. And they have an entire like life change and pivot that usually happens because of some kind of trauma. So I think about someone like Paul, like Paul gets blinded after doing like great violence to people, but his life immediately changes, like how he operates and what he believes shifts immediately and it requires a shift to his life. And so I don't think there's one right way to come to positions where we believe and know new ideas or embrace new theologies. I think we always have to be holding our theology with open hands, recognize that, recognizing that we don't, we are not the ones who get to shape our theology. Like God gets to do that and the community gets to do that. And so much of white evangelicalism teaches us that we need to take theology and master it. Like white theology is about mastery. It is how do I master the doctrine mm. of blank? And once I master yes. that and I know that in my head, that's the thing that transforms my heart and renews my mind in Christ Jesus. And I'm like, no, it just makes you inaccessible and unable to live an embodied faith that actually means something outside of all of the dogma and doctrine. Yeah. And I think that is such a such a helpful framework and vision for people that journeys are different and experiences are different and timing is all different. And in your podcast, uh, Reclaiming My Theology, which we'll link in the show notes, of course, but is far and away, I think, the most important and prophetic and vital resource that we have in the church today. I don't know if you feel that, but I feel that. So I first just want to say thank you so much for your work. I am a faithful Every time it airs, I'm like, boom, I'm going right on. We totally support the Patreon. We do all the stuff. So first, thank you. But on your website, you say that you started this podcast to, quote, form a community experience around faith deconstruction and reconstruction that wasn't and isn't led by white men, which as a cishet white man, I just want to say I love. I support that vision. Absolutely. Yes and amen. And a lot of the quote unquote main voices around the deconstruction conversation are white and specifically white men. And that's problematic for so many reasons. But can you talk about how white supremacy and patriarchy play into even the conversations around deconstruction that we see a lot happening today? Yeah. So uh, this is as I was doing the podcast, so the thing that we did was we essentially took a value every week and asked, how does this value shape how we view the scriptures? How does this value act as a lens or a filter in which we understand Jesus? And one of the ones that I didn't get to and that we'll come back to eventually around white supremacy is the idea of innovation and the ways in which white culture and white society is obsessed with innovation. Every culture innovates, but there's something about whiteness that tweaks like small things to bend capitalistic profit out of them, typically. And so there's a way that even in the church, like think about like the multiplicative movements, like how many books did you see about multiplying church small groups that were basically just the, a little variation on the same thing, but everyone was called profound. And, and I think that's a little bit about what, ha a little bit of what happens in that value of innovation plays itself out 
very clearly in deconstruction movements led by white men who all are having a moment which in this is a this is a fair moment to have where they're realizing that they're the promises that they were given about their faith are not coming to be true that the ideas that they were given have have kind of like pinned them in have fenced them in in ways that are unhelpful and unhealthy and they're realizing that and they're having like the um mind blown emoji moment like every time that they see something new or learn something new and thus assume that that idea is new and so they create forms and functions podcasts, videos, speaking series, books that are like, oh my God, look what I just discovered. I just discovered this. And I'm like, that's just colonizing ideas that have already been there. Because black and brown people have been deconstructing faith at every step of the way historically. And so there's a way that I think as I watch a lot of white men be like, oh my gosh, did you know the Bible could say something different about queerness? I'm like, well, yeah, people have been saying that for forever. Like just because something's new to you doesn't make it new. But I think because there's such a high emotionality because of people's experiences with their faith, I can have some empathy for why that would feel like new and transformative. But it becomes very troubling when white men then hold the knowledge-giving platforms and are taking these resources, running them through a white man lens, and then giving them to people and creating a different type of whiteness while calling it liberation. And for me, that's a problem. Yeah, and I've I've also seen so many who are in that space where they're very much just like colonizing these ideas, but then they're really not interested in a true form of decentering power mm-hmm. because they're still the ones who are maintaining the positions of power. Yeah. They're still the lead pastor, they're still the church planter, they're still the you know, there's these capitalistic systems and structures that they're still kind of operating on or at least under. And that undergirds like not just their philosophy of ministry, but even their theology now, because they don't see the other voices as the authority or the leaders or the people that they need to like decenter themselves in order to like uplift, but rather like, hey, you've probably never heard these ideas before. Let me share this new information that I have found. And then I feel like oftentimes I see specifically white people respond to those leaders with like, wow, that's so amazing. Like you're so insightful. And then it's just these systems that perpetuate like, okay, now you're still being the one to speak at conferences and write the Twitter threads and post the blogs and like do the podcasts. And you're just kind of like, it's the same thing as conservative white evangelicalism, but now it's like a more quote unquote, like liberative theology. And it's like, I just, if you're still at the center, like, I don't, I think that's a major problem. Yep. I mean, there, there's so much we could talk about that and even beyond that, but for the people out there who are having these conversations and they are, you know, maybe listening to or reading stuff from the people that we're talking about, specifically white people and even more specifically white men, if somebody is listening to these voices and interested in like seeing, okay, that is a problem. But now my question is like, how do I circumnavigate trying to figure out a way to learn, not from like progressive white theologian spaces, other than, of course, you know, like reading the people that are in recommended reading lists or listening to your podcast, of course, what are some helpful frameworks that people can develop a culture in their social media or with their theology or perspective to kind of train themselves to spot this kind of culture in leaders or writers or books or thinkers? How can people move beyond just, hey, I'm deconstructing purity culture? What are some like steps that you would encourage people to take to go beyond just maybe not just rethinking their faith, but going beyond that to like try to get to the roots of white supremacy and capitalism and like misogyny and and those like really, really big ideas? What are some ways that people can like begin to think about that stuff? Yeah. So the primary framework that I've used over the last really the last 10 years has been from Gloria Anzaldúa's book, Borderlands or La Frontera. And in that book, she describes how knowledge and power works. And she basically has a circle where at the edge is the margins, the borderlands, the frontera. 
and she names the center, like what is the center, like white, cis, able-bodied men, and everyone gets distributed in this kind of, on this axis that essentially, this circular axis that is being used. And transformation, essentially, she claims, needs to come from the farthest margins because they are the people that are that are the least invested in the oppressive systems as they currently operate. Yes. And, and I love yes. her work and it's wow. so helpful. It's very academic, but it's really, really helpful. And I'm like, oh, I think I've heard this before. This seems like a Jesus way who tells people to lose their life to gain it, to upend the systems of honor and shame that exist so that they are serving each other in sacrificial love for the least of these. You know, I mean, I don't even like that phrase very much, but I think that there's a way that it, it gets to the yes. to the heart of what Jesus is doing. And so I think we always have to ask, what voices are at the center for me and how proximate are the voices that I'm listening to to the center? So if it's like, it's not enough to listen to like white women to try to unlearn patriarchy because white women right. sit closer to that center than, yes. than black women or than trans native people. And so I think what we have to do is, is ask the question, who is at the margins and how can I listen? And I think that there's ways that I don't want to just, I just don't want to, I don't want to just like shit on like white guys who are trying to do this work for other people. I think cultural translation is really important. And I know that a lot of people won't enter this journey unless another white man tells them that it's reasonable and good to do. So I think it's part of why people love Rob Bell so much. I like Rob Bell just great. But like, I think that he gave yeah. a, like a, group of white men permission to explore ideas that they had already been thinking about or intuiting but didn't have language for. And I think that kind of interpretation is really important. I think once people start to build like empires and make money off of those ideas as though they're original, I then I have issue. And so I think there's some questions that we can ask ourselves beyond that question of like center and margins. One is like, when I hear voices from the margins, pay it to, what, what do I feel and why do I feel that way? I think when I first started learning about mm. queer theology specifically, I've been so indoctrinated into homophobia and transphobia that I had like a triggering visceral yes. response that I thought was the Holy Spirit. It wasn't. It was that I'd been indoctrinated to think that people were going to hell for their for their lives. Like that's what I thought. And so of course I'm going to be yeah. triggered by that because I have a death impulse every time I hear about someone who's not like me. And so I think we have to ask mm. like, what emotions do I have? And are those coming from the Bible? Are those coming from my spirituality? Are those coming from my community? Or are those coming from oppressive structures that have something to gain from the oppression of queer folks? And that the answer is almost always yes in that. Yeah. So I think that's a question yeah. we can ask. And I think just the simple humility question of, is this new information or is it new to me or to this person that I'm listening to? Mm. Because I yes. think that there's almost nothing more dangerous than a group of people who thought who think they have discovered something trying to figure out how to consolidate the thing that they've discovered. It's called colonialism, right? Like that's... Yes. <laughs> that That's what that is. Yes. And so I think if we can ask the question. The bedrock of white evangelicalism. Yes. Yeah, so I'm like, if we can ask, like, is this new or is this new to me? Then we can start to ask better questions like, who has been saying this before this person? And what, what are my reactions to that person speaking in their own words? And I think that that character work is one of the hardest things we can do. Because I know that some people listening probably shouldn't pick up, like, Dolores Williams' book, Sisters in the Wilderness, and just, like, take a foray into womanist theology. You might not be ready. You might be too defensive for it. But knowing that she's the person who's thinking yeah. about those things helps to create the context where we can form ourselves to be able to listen to those voices. Because I just don't think it's as simple yes. as like a lot of progressive Christians say where it's like, just listen to new voices. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of formation that often has to happen before that happens such that people don't alienate themselves from the transformation they theoretically want to experience. Yes, which is why I think so many people have such a visceral reaction to ideas that they have been told and they have believed this narrative are wrong or sinful or like secular or whatever. And of course, a lot of these issues that we're talking about come into play with the deconstruction conversation. But even beyond that, I would love to hear your thoughts on how you see white supremacy and patriarchy play out in our spiritual formation within not just conservative white evangelicalism, which a lot of our listeners will be like, yeah, I mean, middle fingers to that. But even beyond that, in a lot of these progressive Christianity and even like kind of quote unquote liberal spaces, in your experience, why is it so hard for people to confront toxive and abusive and oppressive ways of doing theology and also leading churches? Why is that so challenging for people to remove themselves from these systems, try to learn a better way forward? So I just recorded an episode yesterday talking about consent 
and asking the question, why is it that consent is not taught in churches? Or like, why is it so hard for us to talk about consent? And typically talking about consent is very challenging because it, it gives some people a sense of harms or assaults that have happened to them. And to other people who've been perpetrators, you might recognize for the first time that you are a perpetrator of harm. And I think that as we start to confront oppressive systems, we are going to recognize the ways that the very system structures, theologies, practices, ideas, communities that we've created have either caused harm or have caused have caused others harm or have caused us harm personally. And that kind mm. of he that kind of I'm gonna use the word brokenness or trauma is not something that pastors are equipped nor qualified to deal with. Yes. And I think that what happens yes. is oftentimes I will see a well-intentioned white pastor take one risk. They'll be like, Black Lives Matter. And then people will lose their shit on a Sunday morning. And that person's fragility, because they have not had to develop any resilience, because they've been in the same kind of ecosystem of white male theology, starts to they just start to implode on themselves and, and backtrack mm. because their power, their positions, the structure of their church, the finances of the community are all tied up in some degree of theological compliance. And so I think that, w that it, it is deeply challenging because if you start to go down this journey, you might not have a church, you might not have a denomination. You might not have a community. You might be rejected by people around you. And these are all things that Jesus talks about and teaches us about, but that when it actually comes down to it, if it affects our church structures and systems, we assume that it's persecution rather than just living the way of Jesus. And I think that that's, yeah. that's rough because the way of Jesus inherently requires this loss of systems and structures that we think are the ones that are going to save us. So I think there's, I think yeah. there's that piece at least. I also think... That because of how Western culture and white culture specifically worships the written word, I say this all the time, I'm a broken record on this, like white men have had access to every resource creation resource for centuries, have written books, yes. have been literate, have been allowed to be literate, legally allowed to be literate, have had access to printing presses and theological seminaries and higher education and computers and typewriters and publishing deals and contracts and all of those things. And, and really, I think like a lot of white evangelicalism and, and I think a lot of mainline or like any kind of Christian celebrity culture that revolves around white men typically perpetuates the kingdom building of white men because we pick people to invest in that we see ourselves in. But I think if you have access to all of those resources, you create a body of work that then looks like it's truth, even if it's just a body of work created by the people who had access to the body of work. Like it, yeah, I can't take like a exactly. Like I think the metaphor I've been thinking about a little bit is if I were to give, if I were to ask who are the best chefs in the world, and I go to like a third world country that doesn't have access to French cooking techniques and a variety of like resources, but we put them up against the standard of like French technical cooking, of course they're going to seem like less good chefs because they don't have access to the resources, ingredients, affluence, or techniques that are being employed and then called the best thing. And so everything that they do is going to be considered less than rural, minimalistic, like acute process, but not like the real thing. Instead of saying, no, this is a real thing too. It's just not to the standard that we've set under white men about what yes. this should look like wow. and the best way that this should look. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's, that is the idea. And I think with the rise, I think of social media and podcasting and kind of the accessibility of information, I think that married with the idea that a lot of people just want to be handed information for them to just like settle in themselves as truth. And so we can have these white men, like you said, who have access to all of this information. They can package it and put it in like, you know, a book with a sexy cover and a cool like social media campaign. And then everyone is just like, oh my God, this new way of like, this is exactly what the church needs. And it's like, this has been happening for literally centuries. It just, you don't read about it or don't see it because like you said, people that are doing this work on the margins are furthest away from the power. And I, I love that vision. And one of my friends always says that in like, in our community, want, we want the margins to be the middle. And I just love that idea of like trying to learn from people who are like doing the way of Jesus without trying to like commodify it or capitalize on it in order to make a make a buck or to create some kind of thing where you just become the authority on a situation mm -hmm. that that gets real slippery and shitty real fast. Yes. It sure does. So 
Well, you have been in church for a long time. You currently serve on staff at a church, and I know have a ton of vision around the way forward for Christianity in the way of Jesus. And for the last half of this conversation, I'd love to pivot from talking about what's wrong to talking about what's next. And so my question is, how can we as the church followers of the way of Jesus, whatever language you want to use, how can we move forward into expressions of the way of Jesus that align with a culture of all the things that you talk about on your podcast of liberation and inclusion and mutual aid and activism, care for the poor, anti-racism, anti-capitalism, all the things. How do we do that? Do we just, in your perspective and with your conversations that you're having with people, do you find it like we just burn it all down and start over? Do you like go the mainline ordination thing and try to like slowly move from within? Do you just stay in these spaces and like slowly try to make incremental change over time? I think obviously every person and personality and experience is different, but how do we move forward from where we are to like where we need to be as followers of the way of Jesus, specifically in the West and maybe even more specifically in this country? Well, I think first we have to assume that we're probably wrong about more than we're right about. I think that if we understand and have a, I think that in a lot of white evangelicalism, a high view of God is considered like the most rigorously studied picture of God, not understanding God is so expansive that we could never fully understand how God is revealing God's self in the world. And I think that if we can assume that, we can assume that there's so much that we're either wrong about or don't know or or have yet to know or have heard, that I think that's a really beautiful and good thing. I think that many hear that though, and they hear it as well, then there's no boundaries to anything. There's no ethics to anything. And theology never happens without ethics. And so I think that it's a weird kind of straw man argument to be like, you're just getting rid of all theology. I'm like, I work for a freaking church. Like I yeah, look about it. I, my life looks pretty similar to what I think people would consider like a normal Christian person life. And I think that that's, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with, with that dynamic and that it is really prevalent that we try to make God so small that we feel like we have to defend God or defend the Bible all the time. And so I think if we can assume that God is big and constantly revealing God's self, both in our own lives and throughout history, we will be more open to newness as it comes to us. I also think that Reverend Reverend Judy Peterson says that uh, you are God's favorite just like everyone else. And I think if we were to understand life that way, life outside of hierarchy and competition or platform building, and instead say, I am God's favorite just like everyone else, and everyone else is God's favorite just like I am, we would be much less quick to reject people's ideas or their lives, or to even feel like we need to judge people's lives. I think at the end of the day, even as I think about gender and patriarchy right now, one of the things that one of my guests recently said was like, the only reason you need to know someone's gender is so you can know how to treat them. Yes. (laughs) When I heard that, I was like, Oh my goodness, that is the greatest summary I think I've ever heard in my life. Tori coming through. I know, and I was just like, okay, oh my that's goodness. it. It's the only reason yes. Christians often need to know something about someone's life is so we know how to treat them. And if we assume yes. that we are God's favorite, just like everyone else, if we assume that when the image of God in me meets the image of God in you, that something good can happen, I think we would be much less quick to write theological statement papers, deciding who's in and out, and we would feel deeply uncomfortable with any kind of position or process that would lead us to reject people. And and I don't mean, I think there's a way that people get this twisted where they're like, well, then, like, should unvaccinated people come to your church while they're sick with COVID? That's not inclusive. Like, if not, that's not inclusive. And I'm like, no, because ultimately the beloved community, this image that Jesus has for the world is about a world where everyone has enough and is safe to be fully themselves and to belong. And when threats come that threaten the mar- most marginalized people in our communities, we say no to that as an act of being beloved community together, as an act of defending the image of God in people that is so warred with by every part yes. of systemic culture. And so I think that part of the way forward is to lean into the belovedness of individuals for the sake of the common good. Because I'm not like an individualistic person, but I think as I've learned from indigenous elders in my life, one of the things that they've talked to me about is how when you take care of a person, you take care of the community. And when you take care of the community, you take care of the people. And 
I think that so much of like pastoral leadership that I've seen is like, it's one or the other. It's either you're doing one-on-ones with people or you're doing like a community sermon oriented, like the pulpit moment's the most important thing kind of experience. Yeah. And I think I wonder if we thought more about the interchange between the individual and the community and how people belong. And if we did that, I think we would find that we would be much less quick to create oppressive structures and we would be much more willing to pay the individual cost for the sake of the common good. But it's just not a paradigm that a lot of us use. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's rewiring decades for some people of ingrained ideas and theologies and philosophies. And for some personalities, like my personality, I'm like, I could read something one time and be like, oh, that makes sense. I believe that now. And it's like, no, at no cost to like wrestling with it. I'm very like uh, easily influenced by people that I respect. And so I do think for a lot of people, though, it's not a one size fits all, but I would love for you to just kind of give a a pastoral insight into what I know a lot of people, not only in my own community, but just communities around this country are feeling is when do I stay in a place and work to see small change over time and try to like develop relationships and work with my small group or friends or family and when do I know whether that's the route or leaving? I can't rep- be a representative this, of this anymore. I'm going to either leave altogether. I'm going to go and start my own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to like, I can't take part. Do you have any like pastoral insight into how do you know when to stay and when to go? Because I think a lot of people are asking that question and... I would just love your insight and thoughts on that. Yeah. So I have two kind of different ideas around this. But the first one really is just that, you know, engage where there's momentum. There's a reason that most people don't talk to their racist uncle at Thanksgiving dinner because you don't think he's going to move. And there's a scale of act that activists use from one to five, one being like, this person's utterly against me. They are not open to anything I'm saying. They are a bad faith actor in a resistance movement. And a five being like, you're totally with me. And I think if people aren't like a three or like moving in the moving in the direction of being with you, then oftentimes fighting these systems is just like running up against a brick wall and you will feel emboldened and not, not like a negative. I think that word has a negative connotation, but you will be emboldened to do the right thing, to try your hardest, to make it your job to fix the system. But if the system has no amount of movement, I don't think it's worth it. And, but I think the way that we can think about this is like, you know, I worked for an evangelical campus ministry organization for a decade, and I knew that there were positions that they were never going to change on. But there were there were like percentages of change that I knew they could be willing to do. There was like a 3% change. And I had to ask myself, is that 3% change worth it for myself or for others? And so I pushed into those things for like, you know, a long time, yeah. asking questions about like, what, what, because there is movement there. There's willingness to change in that one area. But I can't just assume that because I now care about all of these different isms that I can, for lack of better terms, like attack all of those things at the same time and that people will be responsive. That's not, it's it's like freshman, it's again, it's I use a lot of college metaphors because I worked in college ministry, but I call it first year sociology student syndrome, where a freshman goes to a sociology class, learns a bunch of things that are new to them, therefore they're new. They go home and they're like, I'm 100% a different person than I was before. And everything about our house, household is oppressive. And their parents are like, I changed your diapers, sit down. Like we don't give institutions that we're a part of space to be what they've always been and also have room to change. And I think many of us quit before we've actually given people a chance. I don't mm. think that's overwhelmingly the case. So the other frame that I use is just there's there's kind of three things. I think there's three reasons we stay. One reason is that we stay because of a calling from God, whatever that means in your life. That sometimes Jesus will call you into a space that may be associated with oppressive structures and systems. And I think our responsibility, if we are in that position, is to find ways to keep ourselves healthy in the midst of that. Not just to give ourselves fully to things that are like that might destroy us, if not. I think part for people who are in that position where God has called you to a thing that feels deeply challenging, the call for you is to lean into health and ask how can you sustain mm. and be healthy, combat bitterness and anxiety, get a therapist and a spiritual director, director those sorts of things. So some people stay because there's a calling from God. Some people stay for, you stay for yourself. 
like as I worked in my organization for nearly a decade, there was so much development that I got. There were friends that I made. There were companions in the journey that I came to be so close with. And I stayed because it was good for me. It was a good developmental opportunity, Mm. even with all of the trauma. So the scale I use for that is a trauma benefit scale. When the trauma consistently outweighs the benefit of being in an institution, I think it's usually time to leave. Because your body is the only body you're going to live in. And if you traumatize yourself to the point of nothingness, any good ambitions or good intentions that you have are likely going to be for naught. And so I think that that trauma benefit scale can be really helpful. And I think the other reason we stay is we stay for others. Um, For me, part of it was doing pushback against some of the white supremacy and homophobia in my organization. And so I stayed because there were queer students that I was deeply committed to, particularly queer students of color who didn't have anyone else to be their pastor. And so I was uncompliant with the oppressive structures that I was a part of, but I did that such that my students would have what they needed. And so I think we stay because of a calling, we stay for ourselves and we stay for others. And that there are different types of categories we can use to decide when it's time to go. But I think that those are some frameworks that I've used in my own life. Wow, those are really, really helpful. And I think going to be really helpful moving forward just for people to consider their own churches or jobs or spaces or ministries. Let's say to anyone listening, they choose option two and they're like leaving. And let's say somebody, I know I have been in this space, am in this space, talk with a lot of people who are in this space that are have left kind of a previous way of doing thing and are really have found a, as you said, new to them way of organizing community and doing justice and loving their city and whatever. And maybe they're like starting a ministry or want to plant a church or a nonprofit or like do something on their own. I think that can be really beautiful in a lot of ways, but I also know the colonizing and spiritual gentrification that often happens with conversations around moving to a place and like setting up shop and like bringing the good news of Jesus that like this city needs or whatever. I know that like the, I'm going to do this right mentality of church planting and starting new faith communities and nonprofits and cohorts or whatever is very prevalent. But I think a lot of people are in that space where they may not feel the like, I want to go, you know, Lutheran route or Episcopal and do the ordination thing and like Mm -hmm. be in a mainline denomination. That's not really where I feel most at home. But I also am not somebody who's like, fuck the church. I'm out of here. Like, I do not believe in the way of Jesus anymore. I have no vision for faith in a city, in a community, whatever. And are kind of in the in-between of wanting to be sensitive to the fact that like, we don't want to colonize places, but we also like, I don't know how many examples we have of this in like recovering from an Acts 29 model of like church planting where you just raise a buttload of money and then find like a good preacher. And it's like, great, we're starting this church. So I would love for you just to kind of speak into that. What are some advice you would give to me and others who are like in that space of like preparing or planning or have a vision for something, but also want to be like keenly aware of their social location and a lot of the trauma and history around some of the movements and language that might be used in like what they're taking part of. Mm -hmm. How do you find a balance between those two and what advice or insight or pastoral wisdom would you give to people that are in those spaces? Yeah. So one of the things I've learned again from some of my indigenous friends is the idea of coming in a good way and that going to a place in a good way is not determined by the people who are coming. It is determined by the people who are hosting. And I think so much Mm. of Christianity, if we want to go even into the Luke accounts of Jesus, like Luke 10 to 15, there's these back-to-back stories of Jesus Uh, taking over the hosting role at various parties or in various ways. Like he's inviting himself over to people's houses. He's critiquing people's seating choices as they're sitting. And essentially what he's doing is he's playing the role of the host and saying, I get to shape who we are together. Like I get to set the terms of this, not y'all. And Jesus's terms are always like inclusion and goodness and letting the people who are the hosts be the hosts. And so I think that if we as Christian people or people trying to follow Jesus, assume ourselves to be the host and assume that Jesus and the people that we're going to are not the hosts of their own spaces, we will always come paternalistically. 
And so I think we have to ask, what would it look like for me to come in a good way? And usually you can't know the answer to that question unless you ask. And so much of Christian planting is like, sit and listen to God, draw a vision board, like do some images, get a guiding scripture, like do some city research. And I'm like, but you've never talked to a human who's in the area that you want to be. Do they want you there? Can you bring anything useful or good? I used to um, lead justice programs in Tacoma, Washington for summers with students. And I bring like 20 to 40 college students, right, coming from a privileged place, like into the hood. And I would tell them, we are only good here insofar as we are helpful. And helpful is not determined by what you think is helpful or what makes you feel good. It is determined by, did you do the work you were asked to do? Did we accomplish the task that the organizations that we're volunteering with wanted? Do your neighbors like you? Do they talk to you? Have you made any effort? And I think that so much Mm. of Christian planting models bypass the basics of being like, what does it mean that I'm here? Not what could I do here? Because that's the question we always want to ask because it's measurable and tangible and it's fast. Planting a church is easy. Planting yourself in a community for the long term is deeply, deeply challenging. And so I think we have to assume that we're actually not bringing anything good until we're told otherwise, which is like not a very encouraging yeah. word, but I think it is true. And I think that there's also a reality that like we should be asking the question first, where is the work that I want to see already happening? Because in so many communities, the things that we want to see happen, the beloved community, the formation is already happening in other places other churches, or even non-Christian institutions, activist groups, mutual aid organizations. And if we assume that we're showing up and doing something new or doing something good that's not meeting a specific need, we're usually going to just end up at odds with the organizations whose values we actually most align with because we set ourselves up in competition. And I don't find that to be Mm. particularly helpful. And then I think the other thing is just like start small with people that you love doing a thing that you care about. Because I think that is sustainable. Trying to build like an institution or like a new thing or whatever usually only goes so far. But I think if you find people that you love, that you want to do the thing with, and you commit to doing that humbly in a place where you're actually helpful, it's harder to go wrong. Wow, that's such a good word. So prophetic. I know even for me, like I'm just receiving that and and I know that's going to be so helpful for so many people. As we close, I would love for you to, based on our conversation, based on the work that you do both in your community and in the uh, Reclaiming My Theology community, I would love for you to end by just sharing kind of a future hope for Christianity in the way of Jesus in this country. Like, what do you see on the horizon? What excites you? What gives you hope in the conversations that you're having? What can we kind of like look for and like put our chips into as like, this is something I see that's exciting and is kind of like the next iteration of what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus in this country. Honestly, I don't know. If you have any. <laughs> yeah, if you I, I have don't any. know. If nothing gives you hope, you can be like, honestly, it doesn't matter. I, I am not a particularly hopeful person, mostly because I follow American national politics, which is um, deeply disturbing. And it's like one of the main things I think about outside of the things that you know that I think about. But I think what gives me hope is that we are we are the end of a legacy or we are part of a legacy of people who have hard to had to work harder, strive more intensely under more problematic nonsense than we'll ever know. Like our world is totally fucked up right now. It is. But it's been worse. And that means that it can get better. And I think that as I look mm. at particularly what like my black ancestors have gone through to even create things like to give things like voting rights or beloved community or be ha- have churches or be in integrated spaces. Like my people got fire hosed for that stuff. And like, it's not the same now, but as I look back at them and, and see the belief and faith that they had, I have to believe that the world that I live in right now can be better because if not, it is a dishonor to their legacy and to the faith that they had that they were doing something that was meaningful and good and long lasting. And so I'm really careful to hold those legacies well, but I am encouraged that there are people who are trying, right? Like we're building communities of people who are exiting their oppressive church structures and trying to find something new. And I think that curiosity and that openness and that willingness to heal and to be in therapy and to be in spiritual direction and all of those things 
is deeply encouraging because healthy people lead healthy communities. And I think so much of hmm. white evangelicalism leaves, particularly non-denominational leadership, leaves pastors on their own unhealthy and underdeveloped, trying to develop communities that they think are healthy. But I think healthy leaders develop healthy healthy communities. And if we can be healthy in and of ourselves and in our communities, we will create healthy environments around us. And I think that if Christians had healthy environments around them, all of this theological shop talk wouldn't be as hard. Yeah. Wow. Well, yes and amen to that. There is, of course, so much we could talk about and so much more that you do talk about in the work that you do in the spaces that you occupy. And I want to respect your time. So I'll just end by saying thank you for everything that you're doing. I personally, uh, I know my wife and I share this sentiment of just being so honored that you would share space with us today and just share a little bit about who you are and let us in. I know on some really sacred and intimate parts of, of who you are and your story and what you're pressing into and just giving us as listeners really helpful language and a helpful grid to kind of process what we're thinking and going through. You're so incredible, such an amazing help, not only to us, but the church at large. And I'm so thankful for your wisdom. So thank you so much for being with yeah, us today. Thanks for giving me space. I'm always, always honored. Well, as we close, for listeners who want to stay up to date on what you're doing, what are some of the best ways for them to support you or follow you? What do you got for us? How can we stay in touch with you and support everything that you're pressing into? The easiest way is to check out the podcast, Reclaiming My Theology. On our Instagram, we have some intro, like if you're experiencing this particular category of thing, like if you hate everything right now, if you're done with the church, if you're trying to figure things out, we have some on-ramps to the podcast because in the last less than two years, we've put out an absurd amount of minutes of podcast. So it can be a little overwhelming. But I think if you start with Deconstruction 101 or the second episode of the podcast we did with Erna Kim Hackett on individualism, those are great places to start. And yeah, if you like what you hear, share it with folks around you. We're hoping to create a library of resources to help people understand the unspoken parts about why our faith makes us feel the way that it does and treats people the way that it does. And I think that we're doing a all right job at it. <laughs> Amazing. Well, you're doing better than all right. You're incredible and your community is incredible. So amazing. Be sure to check all of that out. Links, of course, are in the show notes below. If this was your first time listening, this podcast is hosted by me and my wife, Nicole. We are bivocational pastors and leaders in Spokane, Washington, and we keep this podcast sponsor and ad-free as an act of justice. So if you're able to become a Patreon member and support the work we're doing, we'd love to invite you to do so by visiting our Patreon page below. This episode was written, produced, and edited by us, Joseph and Nicole. Grace and peace to all of you. We love you, and we'll see you next time.